the History Channel original podcast. Previously on Reconstruction. If anyone committed treason, Jefferson Davis committed treason, right? He's sort of criminal defendant number one. As the nation claws its way out of civil war, President Andrew Johnson has to decide what to do with all those Confederates. Should we kill a few? What part of execute is off the table on this? By 1868, Johnson's big talk about holding Confederate leaders accountable has faded away. He's got problems of his own. He's the defendant in an unprecedented trial, a trial that is barreling toward a verdict. History This Week, May 16th, 1868. I'm Sally Helm. In Washington, D.C. this morning, it seems like the sky itself is engaged in an epic battle. One minute, it's bright, cheerful, sunny. The next, low gray clouds have people whipping out umbrellas. Beneath that sky, a crowd is making its way toward the U.S. Capitol. A reporter on the scene stops to wonder whether the issue between the clouds and the sunshine would prove prophetic of the consequences to the nation. He means the consequences of the vote that's about to be held in the U.S. Senate. The first ever presidential impeachment trial. This is all anyone is talking about. Will Andrew Johnson remain the president of the United States? The Senate gallery fills up early with people dressed in their finest. Jewelry, silk skirts, golden fans. Those without tickets jam the hallways and the rotunda. Or they wait outside, hoping, one observer said, to catch the first vibration of the result. Everyone's trading gossip. Who's voting guilty? Has anyone decided to defect? Word is that it's going to be incredibly close it might come down to a single vote. Someone enters and says he just saw a stretcher on the front steps of the Capitol, carrying Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan. He's gravely ill, but determined to cast his vote. A reporter described his entrance. He looked feeble, but with the spirit of an old Roman, he had resolved to come and die if necessary on the floor of the Senate. Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York is also ill, but he vowed that even if he lost the ability to speak and walk, he'd have himself carried into the chamber with the word guilty pinned to his chest. The last of the 54 senators takes a seat, and the proceedings begin. A clerk reads out the charges against President Johnson. And then Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase starts down the list of senators in alphabetical order. First up, Henry Anthony. Mr. Senator Anthony, how say you? He says, guilty. On to B, Delaware Senator Thomas Baird. Not guilty. The audience members are leaned forward, counting every vote. Hanging in the balance are the nation's hopes for reconstruction, the great project of putting the country back together after the blood-soaked years of the Civil War. Today, the first presidential impeachment trial in U.S. history. 
in the eyes of Congress. What shocking acts did Andrew Johnson commit that made many members decide he's gotta go? And how did this former ally of Abraham Lincoln help launch a dark era in American life by declaring himself an enemy of true Reconstruction? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. By 1868, the people lining up to impeach Andrew Johnson are the anti-slavery Republicans, those who had supported President Lincoln and emancipation. But before they hated Andrew Johnson, they loved him. That's according to Robert Levine, author of a book about Johnson. Levine said that during the war, Johnson was... Kind of a rock star. He was from Raleigh, North Carolina, and moved to Tennessee as a young adult. He had been the only Southern senator to stand with the Union. He's going around giving lectures and thousands of people are attending because he was the Southerner who opposed secession and he put his life on the line. People were shooting at him as he was traveling. People know him for this courageous act of loyalty to the Union. It's why Lincoln picked Johnson as a running mate on his unity ticket in 1864. We remember Lincoln today for one of his most radical acts, the Emancipation Proclamation. But fundamentally, he was a pragmatist. He wanted slow change. Lincoln understood the questions at the heart of Reconstruction. How do we integrate the former Confederate states into the Union? And how do we treat formerly enslaved people? His instinct was to prioritize unity over punishment. He said it in his second inaugural address, with malice towards none and charity towards all. So when Lincoln is shot and killed, it's a tragedy for the Union cause. But a few of the more radical Republicans actually think this could be a good thing. The scene that we have is a diary entry of three or four Republican leaders kind of gloating or celebrating at the assassination. One letter said, all of the hard work I was doing, all of my struggles are over. We have the man as Andrew Johnson. Those radical Republicans see it this way. Johnson has already proven he can stand up against great odds and defend the Union cause. By this point, that cause is intimately tied with emancipation and rights for newly freed people. They assume Johnson supports those things for the same reason they do, because slavery was morally abhorrent and freed people deserve justice. But it turns out Johnson's views were way more slippery than they could have predicted. Three years earlier, there had been hints that Andrew Johnson might not be a paragon of virtue. It's March 1865, Lincoln's second inauguration, the day Andrew Johnson became vice president. Some people thought that he was totally drunk. Other people thought that he was suffering from some medical problems. And back then, if you weren't feeling so well, 
He might take some alcohol. So he's a little bit out of control. And everyone agrees on that. Like, whatever the reason, something's off. People agree that he seems out of control, that his remarks were short and incoherent. He's slurring his speech. Johnson addresses each member of the cabinet one by one. But then he stumbles. He pauses and whispers loudly, what is the name of the Secretary of the Navy? A newspaper reporter says he's acting like an illiterate, vulgar, and drunken rowdy. All this, the attorney general complains, is in wretched bad taste. This was not an auspicious moment for him. Johnson's vice presidential inauguration is revealing in another way, too. It's the first time he meets Frederick Douglass, the formerly enslaved man who's become one of the most famous people in the United States, the electrifying orator and Black leader, the most photographed person of the 19th century. That Frederick Douglass. Douglass has met with Lincoln throughout the war, and he's at the inauguration today as the president's special guest. Here comes my friend Douglass, Lincoln says to Andrew Johnson, pointing him out from afar. And Johnson, Douglass later writes, gives him a look of bitter contempt and aversion. And when Douglas goes away from that and he speaks to a friend, he's like, that's not a friend of the Black people. Hillary Green is associate professor of history at the University of Alabama. Douglas is seen as capital T-H-E, Black leader of the nation. By this time, he is quite comfortable being in the White House, but Johnson rebuffs him. Johnson refuses to see past Douglas's race. His opinion of Black people can really only be described one way. He was a virulent racist. He said things as president that make your skin crawl. David Stewart is a lawyer and author who wrote a book about Johnson's impeachment. And he told us, though Johnson had supported the union cause, it was really only up to a point. He hadn't opposed secession for moral reasons, but pragmatic ones. He just thought the South would lose the war. And though he'd given speeches in favor of ending slavery, he'd tack on poisonous statements like... At the same time, I assert that this is a white man's government. After the war, he said that the greatest risk the republic had ever faced was the risk that black people would get the vote. Now, this is after a civil war. The country almost fell apart. We've just slaughtered 700,000 people, and black people getting the vote is worse? The fact that Johnson feels this way will have profound implications once he becomes president. The 13th Amendment had freed enslaved people, but hadn't given them rights. Manisha Sinha, a history professor at the University of Connecticut, said this is being hotly debated in 1865. Black suffrage and citizenship is the question around which many of the Reconstruction battles are fought. Johnson, at this moment, is facing two basically opposite proposals about how to move forward in this post-war period. People like Frederick Douglass are saying, what is the point of freedom if it doesn't come with voting rights, with the chance to actually make a living? We need to build a genuine multiracial democracy, redistribute land, reshape the South as a place built on free labor. The idea was to reconstruct the union, you know, to get the Southern states back into the union, but on the basis of freedom. Many congressional Republicans are on board with this even though, David Stewart reminds us, We shouldn't have rose-tinted glasses on about the Republicans in Congress in this era. They were racist, too. 
you know, but they thought black people should have a chance. But that is not how President Johnson feels. Johnson, unlike Lincoln, has no sympathy for the idea of black citizenship or black male suffrage. Instead, Andrew Johnson's idea of reconstruction was that the South would come back in the Union and could do whatever it wanted. This is the second proposal that's out there about what should happen in the South after the war. Not reconstruction, but restoration. His vision, right, is like, that's the group of people I always wanted to be with in the first place. Associate Professor of History Hassan Kwame Jeffries pointed out that Johnson had grown up poor in the South. He'd felt rejected by white planter elites, the same elites who had just led the South into a disastrous rebellion. Johnson resented them, bitterly. But he also longed for their acceptance. And so he signs on with their vision of post-war restoration. It's just like, yeah, all right, that wasn't cool, but let's see what we can do to sort of move forward. And how can I, in a position of power as a Democrat, Andrew Johnson, how can I, you know, gain some benefit out of this situation? Just six weeks into Johnson's presidency, he issues an amnesty proclamation. It says Confederate states are welcome back into the Union with essentially just an apology. And he also dangles the possibility of forgiveness in front of the former Confederates themselves. He forced all those prominent Southerners, the people with money, to come up and personally petition him for pardons. And he loved having them come basically to him on their hands and knees. Johnson's demand that Southern leaders grovel before him seems more like a personal getting even than a serious punishment. And he told them, see, I was right. Uh, You were going to lose that war. In fact, if you'd stayed in the Union, we'd still have slavery. Which he didn't think was a bad thing. Johnson pardoned some 14,000 former Confederates in less than nine months. And it quickly becomes clear that the Reconstruction radical Republicans want... It is not happening. Johnson lets Southern states run their own elections. A bunch of former Confederates get elected, and they start passing laws known as Black Codes, laws that require freed people to apprentice with white masters and get their masters' permission before selling any goods, laws that ban them from holding weapons to defend themselves or from testifying against a white person in court. Basically, laws keeping them in conditions that look an awful lot like slavery. Manisha Sinha told us, people like Frederick Douglass and the Republicans in Congress see this, and they think, Why did we fight for four years if slavery is going to come back in another guise? There's also a wave of violence across the South. The Ku Klux Klan holds its first meeting at the end of 1865 in Tennessee. In 1866, there are these what are called race riots, but which are really massacres against Black people that take place in Memphis, in New Orleans. And there are all these reports coming up in the North that the South has not accepted defeat, does not accept emancipation. Many Southerners are acting as if the war that the North just won didn't happen at all. In February of 1866, Frederick Douglass and a group of seven other activists, one white, six black, come to the White House for a policy meeting. Here's Hillary Green. They're like, you must hear us. And they're going through and they're outlining the outrages that are going on in the South. They're outlining the need for a stronger federal government to intervene with legislation. 
The Freedmen's Bureau bill, which had offered all kinds of support to newly freed African Americans, is about to expire. Douglas and his fellow petitioners want it extended. They want to be treated as equals, not subjected to harmful black codes. And they want the right to vote. Douglas and Johnson both know that for any of this to happen, troops need to stay in the South. Otherwise, the rule of law will keep breaking down and it's just going to be more rampant violence. Johnson listens and he will veto what they ask for. A month after their meeting, Johnson vetoes the extension of the Freedmen's Bureau bill. He says it infringes on the rights of the southern states and stands in the way of the restoration of the Union. And it's that moment that you see Black leaders, including Douglas, feel like they cannot work with him. They can't trust him. And they need to find someone else. And they go to Congress for that. Despite those early hopes, it is now totally clear. President Johnson is an enemy of true Reconstruction. But Congress holds some hope. It's dominated by Republicans, the party of Lincoln. Because the Democrats whose states had rebelled against the Union haven't been let back into Congress yet. So the Republicans start passing laws to try and create the Reconstruction that they want to see. They extend the Freedmen's Bureau bill. Johnson vetoes. They pass a Civil Rights Act. Johnson vetoes. But because the Southern Democrats aren't represented in Congress at all, the Republicans have the numbers to override Johnson's vetoes. It's a very high percentage of veto overrides for any president. Johnson really sort of set the record. David Stewart told us, after a few rounds of this political tug of war, the Republicans decide... Simply enacting legislation over Johnson's vetoes is not good enough that they have to change the Constitution. Leading that charge is a 73-year-old Pennsylvania senator, Thaddeus Stevens. He's the guy who wanted to treat the South like a conquered province and redistribute its property to freed people. He was a man with a club foot who had lost all his hair to fever. He wore an extravagant wig. Stevens is a great debater. He's quick-witted, sharp, You know, I I love the story. He gave some great speech in Congress and was leaving the floor and was waylaid by some ladies who were ooing and aahing over his speech and asked him for a lock of his hair, which was a traditional thing. And, of course, he wore a wig. So rather than disappoint them, he took off his entire wig and handed it to them and said, here, take them all. He has a sense of humor, but he's also a man of strong moral principles. A fierce opponent of slavery through his career, ferocious defender of the underdog. A friend said of him that it's as though every injustice in the world was done to him. Stevens is tasked with drafting a new constitutional amendment, the 14th. It will extend citizenship and civil rights to recently freed people and ban former Confederates from holding federal office. For the 14th Amendment to be ratified, three-quarters of the states have to vote to approve it. So its supporters start campaigning on its behalf. Andrew Johnson, however, sets out to stop them. In the summer of 1866, he embarks on an anti-14th Amendment press tour. He goes from Washington to Chicago and back, stopping at major cities. Robert Levine told us, Johnson sets off on what's known as his swing around the circle. He tells audiences about his biggest policy goals, 
readmit Southern states ASAP, and prevent the 14th Amendment from passing. At one stop in Cleveland in September 1866, Johnson is animatedly, perhaps drunkenly, engaging with the audience. People who are calling out, hang Jeff Davis, who's still sitting in prison at the time, awaiting a trial. In response, Johnson shouts out, hang Thad Stevens, hang the radical Republicans. They're the traitors. So people will shout out to him things like, you're the traitor. There are other places where people are shouting, yes, string them up, string them up. Fall arrives, and the Republicans sweep the midterm elections. They start implementing more radical Reconstruction policies, put the Southern states under military rule, and refuse to let them back into the Union until they rewrite their constitutions to accept emancipation, Black civil rights, and the 14th Amendment. Sounds fair, but President Johnson calls it military despotism. He says he would rather sever his right arm from his body than sign the new Reconstruction Act. But it doesn't matter. Congress keeps overriding his vetoes. So Johnson starts finding ways to get around the laws by firing people. Freedmen's Bureau officials, Treasury office employees, postmasters. Whenever a military commander in the South starts to enforce these congressional statutes, he removes the military commander. David Stewart told us Johnson's pressuring officials to resign, replacing them with flunkies or just forcing them out. So the Republicans in Congress start fighting back. They make it impossible for him to appoint another Supreme Court justice. They prevent army generals from listening to his commands. And the last thing they do is they strip the president of the power to dismiss his senior officials. To do that, Thaddeus Stevens writes up a new law, the Tenure of Office Act. It says, if the president wants to get rid of a senior official, he needs the Senate's approval. In part, the idea really is to stop Johnson's firing spree. But also... It's a trap. I mean, you can tell the last provision says in violation of the statute is a high crime and misdemeanor, which is, of course, the language of the impeachment clause of the Constitution. So clearly, Stevens meant it as, you know, a dare. Violate this and we're going to impeach you. And the fascinating part of the story is Johnson knew that. He knew that it was a trap. He's not dumb. And he wanted to fight, too. So you got two guys sailing into combat who just want to have it out. Congress passes the Tenure of Office Act in March 1867. At this point, Johnson is already butting heads with one official in particular, Edwin Stanton, his Secretary of War. Because Stanton has made it clear he's going to enforce these new Reconstruction Acts against Johnson's wishes. Johnson asks Stanton to resign. Stanton refuses. Congress sides with Stanton. So Johnson removes him again. Without having the power to do it under law. Stanton knows this is coming. So to keep hold of the reins of military power, to avoid letting Johnson's new unofficial appointee take over. He barricaded himself in the War Department, and he stayed there for three months without leaving. Stanton's wife initially tells her husband to come home at once, she refuses to send him clean linens and food, but eventually she relents. Stanton will sleep on the couch for months. He'll eat stews boiled in his fireplace, keep the shutters drawn, and barricade all paths in and out of the office. And that gave him control 
of the army, basically, because the army was connected by telegraph wires. And so he had control of the telegraphs. And General Thomas, who was the supposed interim secretary of war, didn't know anything about what was going on in the army because Stanton wouldn't let him in. So for several months, we have two secretaries of war. We're very lucky that no other country tried to invade us at the time because it's not clear who was in charge of the army. While Stanton holds his ground, camped out inside the War Department, Thaddeus Stevens and the other Republicans in Congress make their move. With Johnson's clear violation of the Tenure of Office Act, they decide, for the first time ever, to impeach the president. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Never before in American history had a president been impeached. But David Stewart told us the idea has been around since America's founding. I mean, there's a wonderful moment in the Constitutional Convention when Ben Franklin says, you know, I'd like this. Otherwise, the only way we can get rid of a bad president is to shoot him. On paper, impeachment is a practical idea. Presidential terms are four years long. If you figure out before then that this is the wrong person for the job, there should be a peaceful, non-shooting way to get rid of them. But Stewart said, there's a real problem with the way the impeachment clause is written. It's fundamentally misleading. It it looks like a judicial legal proceeding, and it's not. It's a political proceeding. What it's really meant to do, Stewart said, is get rid of a political leader. But in order to do that, you need to prove that leader is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. It sounds like a crime. You know, did he jaywalk? Did he rob a bank? I mean, is there some crime out there? That's not what the framers meant. High crimes and high misdemeanors were abuses of office. But that interpretation has been lost. That's why Thaddeus Stevens sets a trap. If Johnson violates the Tenure of Office Act, that's a high crime and misdemeanor. Clear cut. So when Johnson goes ahead and fires Stanton, the Secretary of War, the stage is set for his trial. But what it really comes down to is this. Should this person be president? You know, do we want to get rid of this guy? The Senate impeachment proceedings open on Monday, March 30th, 1868. The presiding judge is Supreme Court Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase. The trial will last for weeks. Just laying out the case against Johnson takes five days. Because they're going through this 
kind of tedious, what one Black writer actually called legal quibbles. Robert Levine again. Whether the Tenure of Office Act was itself legal and whether he had in fact violated it. Even though, really? This is about Johnson's mishandling of Reconstruction. So there was a lot of frustration among the Black people that the big issues weren't being addressed. Levine told us not a single Black person gets the chance to speak during Johnson's trial. One day in April, a few weeks into the trial, Frederick Douglass's son is one of 800 spectators in the Senate chamber. And on this particular afternoon, at the end of a long session of legal quibbles, one of the radical Republicans decides to address the elephant in the room. He directly attacks Johnson for encouraging the violence that led to actually massacres in Memphis and New Orleans in 1866. And says that's the reason we need to get rid of him. His words are contributing to the death of black people. And you know what happened? He's shut up. Johnson's defense lawyer says that radical senator has crossed a line. He requests an early adjournment of the day's proceedings. Justice Chase agrees. Frederick Douglass had considered Chase a friend. And when he hears from his son that Chase has helped silence this speech, he sees that as the ultimate betrayal. Finally, the legal quibbles have all been aired. It's time to vote. The day before the Senate will take up the question of impeachment, attendees at a convention at the African Methodist Episcopal Church in D.C. spend the day in fasting and prayer for Johnson's conviction. Black protesters were camping out overnight, wanting this person convicted for reasons that had nothing to do with the articles of, of impeachment, that this was the great betrayer. When the congressmen enter the room that day, no one is quite sure which way the vote is going to go. Here's David Stewart again. I don't mean to be too cynical about it, but one of the big problems you have when you're bribing people is you never know if anybody's going to stay bought. In many ways, the impeachment verdict does come down to dirty politics, corruption and bribery. I mean cash delivered to senators in return for their votes. There are people coming to Johnson and saying, you know, I can get you three votes for $40,000. Three members of Johnson's cabinet actually set up a committee to raise $150,000 to win the impeachment trial. And they're not paying lawyers fees with that money. The Republicans, meanwhile, are trying to pull out every political trick in the book. There's a proposal at one point to delay the vote until they can get some new Western states admitted to the union to increase their numbers. Nobody was a virgin in this group. Nobody was playing tiddlywinks. This was bare-knuckled stuff. The day the vote begins, the galleries are full. So is the Senate floor. Justice Chase calls the session to order. And they'd go down the roll call, as they always do. A lot of the votes are predetermined. You know who's going to vote one way or another, and they know the votes that are up in the air. There is one name in particular that is being whispered up in the gallery and that's been passed around on the Senate floor. Kansas Senator Edmund Ross. He announced early in the impeachment season that he was going to vote to convict Johnson. And for the 24 hours before the vote, he was in the company of two of the most notorious fixers in Washington at the time. Now, nobody knows which way he's going to vote. 
That day, Ross sits at his desk, trying to keep his hands busy. Obsessively ripping paper up and making a pile of it on his desk. Justice Chase moves down the roll call. A, B, C. Finally, he gets to R. A New York Times reporter writes, a thousand pair of eyes shot into the very heart of the modest, quiet little man who rises at the call of the name Ross. And he casts his vote. Not guilty. And at that point, everybody knows Johnson's going to get off. The realization ripples through the audience and across the Senate floor. Many of the reporters sitting in the gallery immediately get up out of their chairs to telegraph their newsrooms. Word of Johnson's acquittal spreads fast. Edwin Stanton, still holed up in the War Department, hears about it through the Army Telegraph. Johnson himself is eating lunch in the White House library when he gets the news. The president's people rush up to the White House to celebrate with him. That night, the Georgetown College Band plays at a reception toasting Johnson's victory. But for Black community members and Republicans hoping to oust the president, the air is somber, even tragic. Edwin Stanton packs up his papers and leaves his stronghold in the War Department, turning in his letter of resignation. Thaddeus Stevens, who's fighting serious illness and old age. He has to be carried in and out of the chamber at this point. He's so sick. And he's carried out of the chamber basically shouting that this is the end of the Republic. He's just dismayed. Less than three months later, sick in his bed, the great abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens dies. Johnson may only have a few months left in office, but it's enough time for one last big act in the name of restoration. On Christmas Day, 1868, Johnson issues a proclamation. He offers amnesty to all the former Confederate rebels, including their leaders like Jefferson Davis, essentially wipes the slate clean. To Andrew Johnson, the Reconstruction laws are not about justice for all. Rather, he says they're an unconstitutional attempt to place white people under the domination of persons of color. In other words, enough with your talk of reform. I'll never allow it. Some Republicans hear this and settle for what's already been gained. Here's historian William Blair. I think a lot of Republicans at that time just went, you know, washed their hands and said, hey, we're done. We've given African-Americans the rights to defend themselves by being able to hold public office and to vote. We've done our job. But those laws are only as good as they are enforced. And if Johnson's presidency had proven anything, it's that some people in power are determined to keep them from being upheld. Frederick Douglass can see the writing on the wall. In May of 1871, he gives a speech at Arlington, Virginia, Robert E. Lee's former estate, now a Civil War cemetery. Here's author John Reeves. He says something to the effect of, like, let's not forget that the Union folks were fighting to save the Republic, and the Confederates were fighting to destroy it, right? And that this wasn't just a sort of a both-sides thing. If this war is to be forgotten, Douglas says, I ask, in the name of all things sacred, what shall men remember? I think he saw there was this real desire for white America to come together 
and the moral question of the war was forgotten. Because if the war was about slavery, then there really was a good side and a bad side. The problem was that the bad side got off easy. Andrew Johnson, the president who used illegal means to see to that, is not removed from office. Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy, will be pardoned a few months later and walk free. Even so, Reconstruction works for a while. There's a brief window of opportunity when Black Americans vote and hold office and, for the first time, enjoy something like their full rights as Americans. But the unpunished forces behind the Confederacy regroup, reversing all that progress, putting racist laws and practices in place, enforcing them with vigilante violence. Black citizens fight heroically against the new rise of these old forms of oppression. But the country won't see another real chance at civil rights legislation for almost a hundred years. Next time on Reconstruction, we go from civil war to civil rights. The Southerners control the Senate, and they're not going to let a civil rights bill get passed. After another presidential assassination, a new Johnson takes over, Lyndon B. Johnson. And he is under immense pressure to finally make real the promises of the Constitution for all. African Americans have been saying, look, this is what you said, right? You made a promise. Like, you put it down. Don't be mad at us that you put it down. This is the promise that you made, right, to all Americans, we the people. We understand that we weren't in that we then, but we in it now. Listen to part three of Reconstruction in the History This Week feed next week. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. The Reconstruction miniseries was reported and produced by Julia Press. Julia is here joining me. Hello. Hi, Sally. Uh, I'm very grateful to the story editors for this miniseries, Mary Knopf and Jim O'Grady. Dan Rosado sound designed this episode, and Brian Flood provided sound design for the series. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Morgan Givens, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. We want to give a special thanks to all of the guests who you heard from on today's episode. William Blair, Emeritus Professor of History from Penn State University and Emeritus Director of the Richard Civil War Era Center. Hilary Green, Associate Professor of History in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama and the author of Educational Reconstruction, African-American Schools in the Urban South, 1865 to 1890. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at Ohio State University and editor of Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement. Robert Levine, professor of English at the University of Maryland College Park and author of The Failed Promise, Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass, and the Impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Manisha Sinha, Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut and author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. David Stewart, author of Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy and a former trial lawyer himself who once defended a Senate impeachment trial. 
And finally, John Reeves, author of The Lost Indictment of Robert E. Lee, The Forgotten Case Against an American Icon. You can find links to their work along with other sources that we consulted and suggested further reading on our website, history.com reconstruction. I also want to thank Edward Ayers, David Blight, Heather Cox Richardson, Adam Dombey, William Sturkey, and Zebulon Maletsky. Thank you, Julia. And thank you to all the many people who helped us out in putting this episode together. In a few days, we'll be dropping a bonus episode that covers some of the history of Reconstruction that unfolds after this moment and the way that history has been told. And we'll be back next week with the final episode in our series, Reconstruction. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.